Best Book Bits podcast brings you Jeremy Kupacek, author of the books, The 100X Leader, Five Voices, Five Gears, and the national bestseller, Making Your Leadership Come Alive. Jeremy, thanks for being on the show. Michael, good to be with you. Love, love doing these and uh, super excited to be with you. Yeah, awesome. Now, for my audience who uh, might not know who you are, take us back to your early days. Uh, where'd you grow up and uh, where'd you go to school? You know, I'm an, I am an uh, Oklahoma boy, farm boy. My family moved from Prague, Czechoslovakia to Prague, Oklahoma, from a Czech community to a Czech community. So I'm a European grew, who grew up in, uh, in America, right in the middle of, of the country. Yeah, awesome. Talk us uh, a little bit about your your days going to Moscow, setting up an economic school. Uh, what, what's this about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, right after college, I had a professor, and he, he apprenticed me. He was really talented, and he said, um, you know, Jeremy, you're a business guy. Why don't you use business as a platform for good? So how do you impact the world? So I did. We a team of, of uh, team I put together, we went and started this uh, economic school, Moscow Economic School. It's the largest private school in Russia still today, which is interesting with everything. And we basically tried to teach uh, ethics in the midst of economic growth, capitalism with ethics. That was the the goal. And uh, so I've not been involved in it since 19, 1995, but I started it uh, with another group of people. And it's just, you know, lived above a mafia group, had a client assassinated, lived through a coup attempt um, that uh, we were in combat for three days. So it was tenuous, to say the least. Can you expand a little bit on that that story with the mafia stories and the client assassination <laughs> and, the, and, the, yeah. and the coup? Well, so in the early 90s, Russia was chaos because it was subjugated to 70 years of communism. It came out in into a free, sort of quasi-free market capitalism. But all of the, um, you know, all the underground uh, mafia people now had freedom and they started taking territories like this five block radius, this 12 block radius, these. And we lived above the Armenian mafia group um, and a guy named was Andik. And uh, it was just crazy. Uh, So, you know. He saw us as Americans. He loved Americans. He loved capitalism. So we were having these conversations with him. And I was trying to get my bearings and understand what was happening. And he basically took us to a hotel one time. And and he goes, we're the good mafia. And across the river, they're the bad mafia. The Belarusians, the white Russians, they're ruthless. We have ethics. We have have values, basically. And it was just fascinating. I'm like, okay. Well, I know you've killed people, you know, and later there would be all types, uh, you know, of chaos and car bombs and and um, ambushes. And I just we were in the middle of that. I mean, as as American business people and and uh, starting, you know, ventures. Um, but I grew up on James Bond and John Wayne. And so there's kind of like this. I was untouchable and, and probably I was a 20 year old. No, vigor as well. And so it just created an unbelievable experience to build my business from or my, my career from. Yeah, cool story. Yeah, especially sort of early 90s. Um, what did you do after that? You're a serial entrepreneur, but what came after you finished up with Moscow? How did the, your professional career sort of unfold? 
Yeah. So, you know, life, all of you listening, you know this too, the cause and effect of life. Sometimes you have things that happen that take you a different way. We were going to stay in Russia and my father-in-law was in the Oklahoma City bombing and there was a bombing in the middle of the America and it, uh, he survived, but lost, you know, a hundred and something people were killed, 130. And uh, that brought us back to um, Oklahoma. And I was trying to it's right in the middle of America. So it's not the most, it's not where the global uh, business was happening at the time. So my dad had this phrase and I, I recommend it to anyone. It says in your twenties, it's not what you do, but who you work for that's most important. So I found the group of people I wanted to work for and I joined forces with them and got apprenticed in distribution, merchandising, marketing, and started to, but I always had aspirations to, to write and to create and build um, content. So I would do that kind of on the side as I worked there. And then they sold to a private equity group. And my, it was interesting because, you know, your early career things really affect your future. I, I got the Russian experience and watched what communism did to people. And it caused them to abdicate and create apathy. Then I went to work for a private equity group that happened to be autocratic. And this specific equity group was just not, the, the chairman was just a dominator, a dictator. So I got to experience both. And right in the middle, I got to experience someone who was a liberator, this, this amazing family, an amazing uh, leader. So your good and bad leadership uh, experiences shape your future. And that's what it did for me. And yeah, awesome. Yeah, let's jump into your first book. Is it is it Leadership uh, Is Dead? Was that the first one that came out, Jeremy? Mm-hmm. Um, yep, talk about um, you know that starts with a, a near death experience that that changed your life with a a car accident in the middle of a hurricane landfall. Can you expand on that and tell us the story on <laughs> what this is about and how the book came to be? Yeah. So uh, the idea is, um, well, the idea is leadership is influence and influence is power. And you can either use that power to overpower people or empower people or even underpower people. Most of us have experienced overpowerment. We've not experienced empowerment. So um, I was right. I uh, was starting our business giant in 2002. And I was, I told you about the things I had done. I didn't tell you everything because I had some successes. I had some dot-coms I'd started and I had some other successes in private equity. And well, um, anyway, long story short, I, I uh, went, before we started, my wife and I went to Cancun for a vacation. Uh, do you ever remember that movie Signs with Mel Gibson? Mm. The faith, yep. the, the, the yep. crop circles, aliens. Yeah. One of my favorites. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, so I watched the movie and it, and we were in a hurricane, literally a hurricane was a couple of hours away. And I went to see the movie to kind of waste time because they moved us from our resort down to a really dumpy hotel and we didn't want to stay in it. So we're like, let's go see a movie. We came back and that was the plan. As we were coming back, I got hit by a drunk driver and literally um, almost lost my life, paralyzed on the waist down, uh, crushed, um, uh, just crushed me, broke nine ribs, sternum popped out. Um, it was severed my intestines in Mexico in a hurricane at 10 o'clock at night. And um, no electricity, no running water. It was, it was crazy. 
So that experience, and you know, I don't have time to tell you the full thing here, but the amount of of uh, transformation and what it did for me, it basically gave me a chance to do life again as a 32 year old when it happened. Um, you know, I'm like, you know, all right, I, I finished that life. What would my next life look like? And so my name of our company was giant, big, big letters, all caps. So I, after that accident, I squashed the I down to little I. And the idea was, um, humility, not pride, doing big things in a humble way. And so, you know, our business now we have, uh, we have about 800 uh, consultants working in about 114 countries, and they use our content that I create in um, businesses around the world. And coaches and consultants use our content, and so it works. Um, but most of it happened because of these stories, because of the experiences that I've had, and to try to maximize them and learn from them. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And um, yeah, anyone that's had a near-death experience, it really sort of changes them as well. Um, yeah, to talk a, a little bit about the book, uh, Leadership is Dead, you, you talk about, you know, successful leaders strive for influence. Um, true influence requires leaders to give themselves away. Uh, what then is the major obstacle for effective leadership? It's, it's self uh, self-preservation. Uh, can you expand a little bit about that? And, and what, yeah, what do you so mean think about every, every one of us, every one of us has um, some self-preservation. No, none of us want to lose our families or our jobs or our bank accounts, right? I mean, that's just natural. So there's natural self-preservation, but then there's self-preservation that happens when you're working really, really hard because you're afraid and fear. And so the three questions that I ask um, are these, what are you afraid of losing? What are you trying to prove and to whom? And what are you trying to hide? And what I find is that most people, um, they're so afraid of losing something. So they overprotect it. And when they overprotect it, they actually lose it sooner. Because any anytime you overprotect something you're afraid of losing, you, it will have, you'll create a, a situation where you'll lose. You see it in movies, you see it all the time where someone's fear drives them. And that when fear is the driver, you make wrong decisions that inevitably affect what you're afraid of. Yeah. In the, um, in the book, you also go through about uh, how can leaders sort of um, uh, rise above the obstacles of self-preservation and you talk about sort of give trust and first is giving trust and become trustworthy. Uh, second is become credible instead of just smart. I'll read the rest. Third, be intentional about your influence. Fourth, break through the walls of self-preservation. Fifth, pursue relationships before opportunity. Sixth, give away yourself and finally become significant in your impact. Uh, is there anything you want to add on to that? Yeah, it's it's the idea of influence. Is a, it's a game. If, if I know you, Michael, and let's just say I don't know you very well, right? But if I knew you, knew you, I go, are you a thinker or a feeler? Well, there's a few things that have to happen uh, to have influence with you. If you're a thinker, you usually trade off of competency and credibility. So you're going to, to want me to be competent and credible. But let's say you're a thinker and I'm a feeler and I want to talk about your family and my family's vacation and I want to talk about character and chemistry. I might lose influence with you. Doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I just, 
I didn't know how to connect with you. So in the book, you, you teach people that you need all of those. You need character and chemistry. You also need competency and credibility. But if you understand who you're talking with and can be intentional, you can actually have influence with them. You can learn to fight for their highest possible good. They want you and they'll invite you in their world. And then you become significant and influential. The problem is, is if you're trying to protect yourself because you're afraid of losing, you will never garner the respect or the influence that you desire from the person. So it's an oxymoron. It's like a, it's a predicament with most people. And so for me, I've had to learn how to become, to get past that self-preservation questions to go, I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to, to hide. I have nothing to fear. So it's that I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not, nothing to lose. And it's hard to get there because in certain relationships, absolutely, I'm trying to prove myself to them or absolutely, I'm afraid of losing this. So you have to be smart about it. I'm not saying drop your walls of self-preservation to everyone around you, but I am saying be cognizant that if, if you're doing anything out of fear, you won't get what you want. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. Some of the notes I took. Yeah, thinker versus feeler. I know that when you asked that question, I immediately said thinker, and and then you know sometimes I'm a feeler too, but a lot of times I want to speak from the head, not the heart. So I want to have a conversation with someone regarding what's going on in my head instead of talking about my feelings and things like that too. So totally makes sense. Um, let's let's switch gears for a second. Uh, no pun intended. I'd love to talk about the <laughs> book five five gears, um, which which is great. But first, can you talk? To me a little bit about your relationship with your co-author which is steve uh cochran um yeah how did the relationship start and i believe you guys are in is in business together with the giant companies yeah, is that correct yeah. yep yeah that's right yeah um so steve and i met um through some relationships we actually met and got to know each other in auckland new zealand um and so we were in auckland and having some meetings and sessions there but uh uh no we we just found a really connected um his He's a personality guru, which is unbelievably smart at personality. And I have these leadership tools and language, and we kind of mashed them together and found that they really worked. Uh, I focus a lot on emotional intelligence. I focus a lot on IQ. He focuses a lot on personality and IQ, and we kind of put those again together. So it just works. He's also in England. I'm in America. So that, that helped us have that kind of British Commonwealth uh, connection to the world, even though I joke with him at times about, you know, the tea party in America and, you know, America deciding not to want England. Um, anyway, uh, so we get in and we, but I lived in London for two years and spent time there and we built the tools, the giant tools. We have about 70 tools that companies and coaches and consultants use around the world. So it's a really strong partnership. And, uh, but it was actually the five gears Everything that we write about is basically what we see in each other or ourselves. Like, for instance, oh my gosh, I'm such a screw up here. Huh, I do this. Do you know that I do this? And other people going, yeah, I get it. Because we just decided, let's just be authentic with with self-awareness and realize that we all have broccoli in our teeth, every single one of us listening, and none of us are perfect. That's okay. Let's just do something with it. So we started to create these mirrors, like uh, tools that become a mirror. I just hold a mirror up to you and go, all right, Michael, do you see this? So where do you think you are? Now the mirror is the bad guy, not me. 
So the mirror is actually giving you the opportunity to help you get the broccoli out of your teeth. And the five gears was actually me observing Steve's life and he and I talking about each other's lives to go, huh, this is what I'm noticing. Here's where I'm at. What do you see? And it was his response and my work of just kind of outlining an emotional intelligence about how to be present and productive uh, because some people are constantly productive, but they're not very present. And some people are present, but they're not very productive. And that's... Yeah, no, continue. I was just going to, uh, for people who are listening going, what are the five gears? We'll, we'll go through them and I'll just give them a, a little brief uh, recap. A fantastic book. Um, yeah, it's the wisdom is just makes so much sense. So the concept of five gears, helping you understand and apply the most appropriate gear to each part of your day. So from slow speeds when you start and stop your engine to full speed cruising down the freeway day to day. Um, let's jump into it. So you base one of the stories in the book about yourself habitually coming late home from work for dinner um, with your head still in the office paperwork until your wife become sort of exacerbated uh, and put a strain in the marriage. Um, how did it get to that point? Just You just said it. It was me going, you know, um, hey, it's going to be a busy season. Um, I need a little bit of grace. I'm going to be home a little later. So I, she said, great. What time? And I'd go, you know, 6.15-ish. And I don't know what it's like. What is ish in Australia? How long is ish? Is that five minutes, 15 minutes, it's 30 minutes? It's funny 6.15 because I normally get home at 6.15 for dinner as well. So isn't that, that's actually quite funny. I get what you're about to say. <laughs> yeah, ish is like maybe five minutes. Yep, 6.15-ish, 6.20 yeah, and, would be the latest. Ish would be like 15 to 20 minutes. You know, and so we had an issue over ish. And um, and so that led to her. And then when I would show up, I'd be home. Then I was so consumed because I was buying a company, selling a company, working on. Uh, we used to own John Maxwell's assets. So I had all the John Maxwell companies. And so and I was running the LeaderCast brand and the Catalyst conferences. And I just had a lot on. So when I would sit down with our family, I would kind of fake, hey kids, how's it going? Highs, lows, uh, how was your day? Then after a while, she started noticing, it's like, you're here, but you're not here. Like, where do you go? Where are you? Cause you're in another region and we've said your name three times. And again, don't know if that's ever happened to anyone listening, surely not, maybe it was just me. So um, that's when I realized that this little device, these little smartphones were smart and dangerous. And it was taking over and consuming my attention and uh, um, lots of other things, right? So it's still an issue that I have to work on. So I basically came up with a system and the system became the five gears. Um, the early system didn't have the numbers like this, but the idea was um, when I would drive, I would find a marker on the way home and the marker would be my trigger point. And it was a gas station about three miles from home. So I would get off the phone if I was talking to anyone or I would switch gears and I would go from fourth or fifth gear of work to second, third gear in my mind. 
And uh, should I share the gears? Would that be helpful? Yeah, so I'll go, I'll go through it. So just some notes I took. So basically the, the disconnects um, stems from moving at different speeds to those around you, right? In short, you were driving too fast for, for your house. Now, I'll go through the gears just quickly. First gear is for individual recharge. Uh, second gear is connecting deeply with friends or family. Third gear is for casual socializing, which is, you know, um, as we do. Fourth gear is working and getting multiple tasks done, which most people spend their most time. And fifth gear is uh, fully focusing on a single project. But we'll start with the fifth gear, uh, which is good for getting specific things done, but can't make you miss important opportunities. So let's go down for the gear. So uh, gear number five, can you expand on that? Yeah, so fifth gear is, is when you're in the zone and you're working and it's like, hey, Michael, Michael. Michael and three Michaels to get your attention means that you are so fixated on whatever you are working on. So if, if it's a report, if you're writing something, you might be working on something intently, maybe it's a project and you were so consumed by it, you, you were in that flow. So that's fifth gear. Fifth gear is good. Some people don't know how to get into fifth gear and some people are in it too long. And you might be in it too long if you have every meal in front of your computer um, and you're constantly working. F- fifth gear is meant to be like two hours, hour, two hours, three hours max, not eight hours at a time. A lot of introverts love that gear. Fourth gear is uh, multitasking. So it's your to-do list. Um, I- I've been saying lately, it's you're making donuts. Like I got to make the donuts. I got to do the work. I got to, it's your call them back, schedule this, do this. And you have fourth gear at work and you also have fourth gear at home. A lot of people will leave their fourth gear at work to come home. I got to vacuum. I got to do the dishes. I got to take the kids here. I have, you know, all of these little, little to do's and you can get consumed by them. And it's a, it's a habitual thing. So that's uh, fourth gear. Third gear is, and those are mostly the work gears. Third gear is chit chat, small talk, uh, social. Uh, again, some people, hate this gear because it's it's like a, they want to be a wallflower and they're afraid of what people are going to ask them. Uh, some people love this gear and they've got like a Hawaiian Aloha shirt underneath their shirt. They're ready for the bar and they're ready for happy hour. And so it's a fine line. And there's other people who don't think they need it because I don't need more friends. But third gear is where people sniff you out. People test you to see if they want to go deeper or not. Do they like you or not? It happens in third gear. And if you don't do it well, you can you can isolate yourself. Um, second gear is uh, connection. It's date night. It's that friendship. It's a call with mom or dad. It's someone who's that you an old friend that you really connected with. That's second gear. And then first gear is recharge. So it's what do you do to recharge yourself? to energize. It could be working out. It could be reading. It could be listening. It could be something that you do that's for you to help you recharge. So the idea is we need every gear every day, but most of us get stuck in two or three max and we don't know how to do the other gears. So you need to understand which of the gears are hardest for you. And once you work on that, your influence will go up. Yeah. What are some of the notes I got from as well? Like you can schedule what gear you're in. So obviously using the journal or using understanding your life, normally we sort of repeat the days in, in loops, as, as you know. So going from the work life, sorry, waking up home, 
going through your normal routine, what gear are you in at home? And then going to work, you obviously got to put the car into gear and get up to sort of gear number four and hopefully get mm-hmm. into gear number five as well. But also managing your energy levels, knowing when your sort of natural energy levels drop and when you can sort of naturally drop down into those gears of gear number three, socializing, for, forging those relationships and building those uh, relationships, not only professionally, uh, but socially as well. Um, yeah, I really like the idea that you're not in that one gear all day. This is not a, a CVT transmission and an auto where it's just in that one gear. Your life is a manual. Uh, uh, your your life is not a T bar auto. It's a it's a it's a manual gear shift. So yeah, use it and understand when the right gear uh, to use as well. One of the cool little questions I've got: Did you ask someone uh, about uh, what his passions were, and they said wrestling? And then what happened after that? You took him to a pro wrestling match. Is that correct? The story in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did, and it was it was the uh, you're know, like oh man seriously he was a client too, and uh, it was really hard to crack, and I took him, and it was like uh, I had a suit. Um, on, I didn't pack right, and I had a suit, and he's in his rec- wrestling attire, holding a sign. And from that moment forward, we became good friends. And it actually, he, a lot of business started coming my way <laughs> just because I took him wrestling. Yeah, and and that's sort of interesting as well. Like uh, to crack people that might be in fourth and fifth gear all the time, and it's work, 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 and it's focus, focus, focus. Um, and they don't want you to get in gear number two or gear number one because that's their personal space, gear number one, and gear number two is their close friends and family. So how we crack those people in fourth and fifth gear is mm-hmm. is to get into that gear number three and that social conversation and see if you can find some rapport, as you said, to, to crack them. And then they'll let you into gear number two and that lets them go into gear number four and five with you as well. So I, I like the whole analogy of the, of the five gears as well. Um, segwaying from that book uh, too, there is a, a part number, uh, there is a reverse gear as well, so I like to talk about. So reverse gear is important for maintaining respect and influence, but it needs uh, sincerity. Can you talk about what the reverse gear is? What that's about? Yeah, so imagine a car, a vehicle uh, with no reverse. I think in England it was called the Robin um, I don't know. And so, you know, you have to park very strategically, right? So the concept is reverse for humans is apologizing. It's being responsive. It's my fault, my bad. I screwed up. Forgive me. Versus resistance. You can either be re- responsive or you can be resistant. Resistant is I didn't, I didn't do it. I didn't know. I didn't get the email. Michael didn't tell me. If he had told me, I would have done it that idiot and whatever. So you're constantly resistant, which means that's actually insecurity. It's pride. It's, it's drama. And, and so chaos. So we basically said, look, I teach my kids this all the time when they were younger, you're going to screw up a hundred times when you do own it, be responsive. If you're responsive and own it, that it'll be easier for you and better for everybody. But if you're resistant, you're going to have more, you know, discipline. You're going to have more issues. So just own it. So the same is true for people. It's like, you're going to screw up. When you do, just own it. And you actually don't lose influence. You gain influence. You lose influence when you try to hide it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And um, yeah, 
thanks for teaching that to your kids because I think we all need to know that, yeah, we're all going to stuff up and make mistakes, but it's quicker that we nip it in the bud and say, you know, I stuffed up, uh, let's move on instead of dragging it out with uh, denial uh, too. Um, just to finish off the book, you talk about, you know, the five gears requires practice and self-awareness, always applying the right gear to the situation. So you talk a little bit about the five circles of influence, which I touched on before, but I didn't put it in the right context. So you've got self, family, team, organization, and community as well. And each of those requires different gears to navigate appropriately. Um, you also talk about the core process. What is uh, this method called the core process? Um, do you want to say what it is first if you you know what it is? Yeah, it, it basically means uh, to call it, own it, respond, and execute. So the concept of self-awareness is you actually have a process to go through. What just happened? What's my learning opportunity? Huh, I'm I'm not present with my family. W- own it. Why is it happening? Because I'm fixated on fourth and fifth gear. I've got so much in work and it's a habit. Okay. Well, what are you going to do about it? Respond. I'm going to I'm going to try to turn off and uh before I go home, I'm going to try to find a marker to switch gears. Okay, when are you going to do that? Execute. Uh I'm going to try that tomorrow. I can do that tomorrow. Okay, good. That's the core process. So when you core process everything, you give gives you a chance to actually work on your tendencies and on, on yourself. Yeah, very cool. And and one of the cool things you can do to incorporate the five keys into your life is to actually let others know about the language of uh, the the five keys, which is you can hold up a, one of the cool that you can hold up a sign if you're in fifth gear and someone comes and they're in you know gear number gear number two or three and want to socialize you can be like just i'm in gear number five so they understand what gear you're in you're also going to communicate better is there anything you want to add on to that before we wrap up uh, yeah on that's that just summary? it's uh, the the secret is it's objectivity you uh, drama comes from subjective language come on michael why are you you know you, you're always on your phone you're never blah 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 well, that, that's where drama and nagging comes from. So instead, I can go, hey, dude, you knew, like, we're all at the pub and you're talking about work. You're in fifth. We're in third. All I have to do is hold up three fingers and you go, yeah, 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 right. My bad. So it causes you and helps you to get become emotionally intelligent or have the opportunity for it. Also, to just explain that to people as well, what the, what the five keys are, they might not realize that... Uh, they're in auto when they should be in manual and that, you know, being a manual, you can control the gears instead of just being automatic about, oh, whatever I feel, which gear I'm in, I'm just going to burn out. Um, yeah, and I can relate to, you know, staying in fourth and fifth. Well, it's that's where burnout is. You've got to go into uh, one and two. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on to the other books because you've written some amazing books. Uh, I want to talk about becoming a 100x leader. What is the book about? And talk to me about the analogy you use with the Sherpa, with Mount Everest. I absolutely love those guys. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about 100X Leader. What's it about? Yeah, so, you know, again, I had been in the leadership space for so long with so many authors and good guys, you know, Pat Lencioni and John Maxwell and Jim Collins and Henry Cloud, people like that. And But there was so much jargon around leadership, especially like Harvard and all of these different studies. And I just started to realize, you know, the best example for leadership is the Sherpa because they have to climb Mount Everest and, and help people climb. And for those of you who don't know, a Sherpa is a, a native Himalayan 
they're an, a native tribe of people that were born at 14,000 feet. So they have a genetic predisposition to the altitude. So they, they can climb uh, much better than you and I can because their lung capacity, their brains are acclimated. Um, so therefore, um, they will go up before anyone else. They'll climb to camp one, check the ropes, move the ladders because the glacier shifts every day on, on Mount Everest. Then they'll come back down to base camp, get you. And then each Sherpa has five to six people that they have to take up the mountain. And in those, those climbers that they're taking up, the climber is not the leader. The climber is a climber. The Sherpa is the leader because the Sherpa is making sure that they get to camp one. So the whole analogy of leadership is basically the Sherpa is climbing at the same time. They're performing while others are performing, but they're leading performers. And that's a difference. So um, if you have a team of people, let me give an example. Uh, it's very easy. You can take the Sherpa assessment. Very easy to go. If you have a team of people, let's say you have three people that are team leaders in your company. Well, how would you rank them and give them an assessment on their Sherpa assessment. So they are, how good are they one through 10 at leading people and how good are they at, at leading other people? So their performance is the first one, sorry. How good are they at performing, at climbing and how good are they at leading people? So they could be one through 10, they might be an eight. They're a performer, they're really strong, they're really good, but they might be a two in leading people. And the next person could be a six in performance, but an eight in leading other people. Well, I would take the person who's lower performance, but better at leading performers. I would take a six, eight more than I would take an eight, two. Because an eight, two is a great climber, but a horrible leader of other people and no one's endeared to them and they don't want to lead. Well, that team's going to be less effective, even though they might be a better performer individually. Does that make sense? Yeah. We, well, we all know this from companies that the, the top performers get into leadership roles where they stink as leaders, but they're great performers. And they can admit it anyway. Like at the end of the day, they'd love to go back to performing, but they've got, this, they, they, they've got something to hide, something to prove, and something they don't want to lose as well. And it's all it's, a, it's just a loop that we all go cycle. through. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love the idea uh, that you talk about Sherpa. Obviously, there's some amazing Netflix stories about climbing and Mount Everest as well. And you just see these... They're just so relaxed and in Zen with what they do, but their success is not measured by how many times they reach Everest. Their success is measured by how many people they help reach the summit. So for them, it's just about being being a leader is not how many wins you can get, but how many winners you can create uh, along the way. So yeah, anything you want to add it, on that? That one was a yeah, yeah that was a uh, interesting. I you know I asked them, I interviewed. And you know that they're if they're Sherpa because their last name is Sherpa. So Finuru Sherpa, Nibu Sherpa, Nibu Sherpa. And when I interviewed them, we sat and had this call. I, I asked the question, so um, how many times have you summited? Like thinking that would be a great summit. And they all, they all looked at each other and they started laughing. And they're like, no, it doesn't work that way. And one of them had marked 17 on a belt. He goes, I don't know, but I've helped 17 people make it to the top. I don't know how many times I've summited, but I've helped 17. I'm like, okay, that was it. Leadership right there. Yeah, isn't that it interesting? Was, it's not, and I'm sure none of them have read it. I'm sure none of them have read a book on leadership, but it's such a natural tendency in their culture that it's just a 
it's an outward expression yep. of what truly goes uh, from the heart, not the head. They're not thinking about the number. They're actually just w- working from the heart as well, um, which is really cool. But yeah, let's, let's, you, you talk about four things you've mentioned on the podcast a little bit as well. You talked about protector, liberator, um, abdicator, and dominator. What is this about? Do you want me to go through it? So you've got high support, low support, high yeah. challenge, low challenge. Can you talk to me about what a dominator is first? Yeah, so the idea is it's almost this is one of our tools. It's like rope on Mount Everest. It's like the best leaders in the world learn how to bring high support and high challenge. And they learn how to calibrate. Sometimes you need more challenge, sometimes you need more support. It just depends on the situation, it depends on who you're with. So if you bring high support and no challenge consistently, then you can protect your people. And you, you can enable them, and it can be kind of an entitlement culture. And you see this with parenting kids. If you never bring challenge, kids will take advantage of that. Um, you see on the other side, if you bring high challenge and low support, that means someone is using fear and manipulation to try to motivate you. So, But their fear over time, their yelling doesn't move the needle. It, you learn how to work around them. and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It usually leads to compliance not engagement. So people will do just enough to keep their jobs. Uh, you have some people, and I always joke and say it's the post office, um, but it's low support, low challenge environments of kind of like, yeah, 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 send me an email. Or if someone's about to retire, sure, I'll get to it. Just leave it here. And it's that low support, low challenge thing. But the best leaders are high support, high challenge. So we call them liberators. And the liberators, uh, someone who liberates is someone who who helps people find the pilot light in them and they light their heart. Like they literally turn them on to their work. They, they get full engagement because people want to work with this person. But it's not kumbaya. It's not soft. It's high support, but unbelievably high challenge. So it's that best coach you've ever had. It's the best professor or teacher you've had, best parent who you're so endeared to and you so respect, but you don't mess with them. <laughs> you, know, you know that they'll push you. And that's what I'm saying is like, we need more leaders. We call them liberators. They're 100X leaders. They're Sherpa. We need more leaders who think positively, proactively, and they fight for the highest possible good of those they lead. We have right now masquerading, we have a dominator on the world scene who's using liberation language, but he's a dominator. So Putin is trying to take ground and he's saying, we're going to liberate you. And they're like, we don't want to, we don't want your liberation. We didn't ask for it. We don't need it. We're fine. If you know, and so, but using the language of liberation, when you really have an intent to use fear to overpower, not empower. And that's ultimately what I do. And I'm, what's my purpose is to raise up liberating leaders around the world. Yeah, well said. And, and good analogy as well. I mean, you can, you can see in general life that how a, a quick switch can turn someone from a dominator to a liberator, a liberator or a protector to a liberator. And you just need to set so a low challenge, put a bit more, you know, someone could be high support, low challenge. But hey, if you give them a little bit, uh, a little bit more of a challenge, you can turn into a liberator. So obviously very easy to see when you have the tools uh, at, at your disposal and you know what you're looking for as well. 
Um, before we run out of time, just switching gears a little bit, talk a little bit about your other books, which is Five Voices, How to Communicate Effectively with Everyone You Lead. What are the five voices? Yeah. And, and so the five voices is probably my first book, Leadership is Dead, was the bestseller. It sold the most books, but five voices is definitely rising up the ranks. Um, so many people. We basically took apart Jungian typology on my, where Myers-Briggs comes from, and um, we created a system that's more simple. The problem with most personality assessments is that they're very hard to scale and they're very limiting in the go, oh, you're a seven with a wing eight. Oh, okay, I know you. Or you're an ENFP, or you're um, you're a high I, you know. So there's all of this language that you might understand, I might understand, but anyone listening to us doesn't understand. And it doesn't scale. So I call it cul-de-sac learning. It's like it's really good in the cul-de-sac, but it doesn't go down into the oper- into the operations. So we created a system. Of, of to understand your leadership voice that leads to communication. It's a communication system that allows people, it's almost like learning someone's language. So the five voices are the nurturer, there's a creative, there's a guardian, there's a connector, and there's a pioneer. And inside those five, there's 16 different variations. So you could be a pioneer guardian or a pioneer creative. Uh, you could be a nurturer guardian or a nurturer connector. Those are just examples. But if you understand the base foundational voice and you can speak that language to someone, you can connect with them. So I started connecting with my kids at 14 years old, 13 to 15. And I'm like, huh, I have a creative, I have a guardian, and I have a nurturer. Got it. I can communicate with my kids now by speaking their language. And so we apply the platinum rule, which is do unto others as they would want done to themselves. So if I know that, um, you know, Michael, you're from Melbourne, uh, I need to speak Aussie, uh, then I need to to at least understand, obviously we speak English together, but I need to understand cultural dynamics uh, of an Australian and have that conversation that's very, very different than, hey, I'm an American, you just, you need to play by my rules. No, I need to learn and understand your culture. The same with personalities. I might be a pioneer, but I need to understand a nurturer and at least value their voice so that I get the most of them. Because this is crazy. There's two of those voices that are represent 73% of the entire population. The nurturers are 43% and the guardians are 30%, which makes up 73%. That group of people are present-oriented They're not future thinkers. They're thinking about today. They're concerned with people, just what's going on in my world today or this week. 27% are thinking about tomorrow. Most of them have moved to the big cities because the future resides in the cities with other future thinkers. Yeah, got it. Just to understand that as well and just to, to recap, some of the notes I took was, you know, are you focused on relationships, values or people uh, or are you orientated toward more tradition, uh, money or resources as well? So, yeah, knowing now others hear your voice um, and you appreciate the contributions of others on, on your team as well. So, yeah, really cool understanding sort of your natural leadership style and it gives you a framework for sort of leveraging your strengths uh, as well. But, yeah, I think we're going to run out of time. So, Jeremy, I just want to say, yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for recapping some of the books as well. Um, 
Now, where can sort of people find you online or where can people uh, buy the books? Is it the website or is it sort of Amazon or what's yeah, so best? Amazon for books. Um, if you want to find out what we do, we partner with people. Uh, we partner with coaches, uh, part-time, full-time. You can go to giantworldwide.com. And we certify people to use our content inside uh, companies and organizations. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, Jeremy, thank you for being the guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. And yeah, uh, is there any more books that you're working on or anything else coming out in the future? Yeah, I have, a new, I have a new series of three coming out. And the first one is coming out probably um, January February of next year. Awesome. Super awesome. excited. I can't can't give it a fully away, but it's it's basically on wants and it's really, really fascinating. Perfect. Well we'll have you on next year when it comes out and I'll I'll do a summary of it and uh share it with my audience as well. So again, Jeremy, uh thanks very much and continue what thanks, you're doing Michael. and yeah, look forward to the new book coming out. Cheers. All right, I'll speak to you soon. All right.